Good morning, Door Creek. So good to be with you today. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm one of the staff pastors, and it's my privilege to bring God's Word with you today, share together from the book of Proverbs. Hey, quick shout out to our other venues, our chapel, our North Campus, and DeForest. So glad you guys have joined us today. Uh, all right, I'm going to put it out there. You ready? Here it is. Today's topic is money. It's money. There it is. It's out there, right? Money. A lot of different emotions are stirred up in us when we talk about money in church, right? I think about when I was a kid growing up in a small country church, back when they passed the baskets around. Remember that? Passed the baskets down the aisle. And uh, if the preacher looked in the basket in the offering and there wasn't enough in there, it'd come back around. We'd do it again. It's like one of these. And you're like, What? All these different experiences and emotions are stirred up in us. Now, this is one you've probably heard before. How many of you have heard this? That if you live a godly life, you'll get rich. Have you, how many of you have heard that? If you live a godly life, it will result in getting wealthy. And some people actually uh, believe that. Some churches teach it. In fact, I'm going to take a little poll. I want to see here. How many of you would say you agree with the statement that if you live a godly life, it will result in a generally prosperous life. Throw your hand up there. Oh, good. I got a few. Good, good. All right. Now I'll ask you how many of you disagree with that statement that you think living a godly life will. All right. How many of you were totally chicken to vote? <laughs> yeah, most of you. That's all right. That's all right. Well, today we're going to continue in a message series we kicked off last week. Pastor Mark kicked off Proverbs, Wisdom That Works. And we're going to look at a practical book and some practical wisdom God gives us about how to live our life. And remember, as we go through Proverbs, what we learned is this isn't about just gaining knowledge. Wisdom means taking the knowledge of God from our head to our feet, from our heart to our hands how to actually live out the principles that God gives us. And the purpose of this is for God to change the way we think and ultimately change the way we live so that we become more like his son, Jesus Christ. Now, these proverbs are not promises. They're not guarantees of what will happen, but they're generally accepted wisdom about how life will go when we follow God's principles. Now, I want to kick this off by looking at two key verses at the beginning of Proverbs that are actually, I think, the keys to unlocking all the wisdom we see in Proverbs. If you get these verses right, it'll all make sense. If you get them wrong, you can actually get tripped up on some of Proverbs' wisdom. So let's look at these. We're going to be all over the place in the book of Proverbs. We're going to flash passages up on the screen to help, uh, but there's passages throughout this book that talk about this subject. So if you would, open your Bibles to Proverbs. It should be right dead in the center. If you open it up, you might have to go a little to the left or turn in your mobile device, and let's look at this book. Let's start out in chapter 1, verse 7. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Ah, it's a good place to start. All wisdom begins with fearing God recognizing who he is and who we are before him and following him, making the choice to put him first in our life. Flip over to chapter 3, look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So again, wisdom begins with putting our trust in the wisdom maker and the wisdom giver. Knowing God is the beginning of understanding who he is and how we're supposed to live. And in this passage we learn, and as you read through the book of Proverbs, there's actually two ways to live. Proverbs talks about the way of wisdom, which is God's way, understanding his principles and choosing to apply them. But then there's this other path. And Proverbs talks about the way of the fool or the foolish, or this idea of leaning on our own understanding and shunning God's wisdom. And that will lead to destruction and heartache. So the beginning is saying, all right, God, I believe in who you are and what you did for me. I'm going to follow you. Hit me with your wisdom. If we start there, everything else has a way of falling into place and making sense. All right. So earlier I took that little poll about that statement about godly living resulting in prosperity. Now I could give you my opinion about that, but you don't want my opinion. Let's look at what God says in Proverbs about that statement and see what in it is true or untrue. Um, I would say as we look at a couple of verses beginning chapter 21, there's a sense in which that statement is true. Uh, Chapter 21, verse 21 says, He who pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. There is a sense in which living a godly life following God's principles will result in a sense of life satisfaction. There's just something about knowing who God is and who we are and what he's called us to be that fulfills that longing in our heart. There is a sense of prosperity in a spiritual sense. Uh, Look at chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Yeah, this seems to indicate if we're faithful with what God gives us, that he'll provide, that there'll be an abundance. So there is a sense in which this is generally true, that godly living does result in a better life. Now, There's a sense in which that statement is very untrue. If you think the idea is if I live a godly life, I'll get rich. Like it's a quid pro quo. Like if I give to God with my shovel, he'll give back to me with a bigger shovel. There's a sense in which that is not true. Uh, Godly living is not a means to wealth. It's actually a byproduct. Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Another verse, chapter 28, verse 6. Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. Oh, well, that seems to indicate I can be righteous in my way of life and actually have very little. Or I could be wealthy, have a lot, and live in turmoil or be miserable. So wealth actually doesn't have a tie to righteous living or my relationship with God. It's a byproduct. It's not our focus. Uh, Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he takes it a step farther. It's funny, in the New Testament times, this this idea was actually alive and well. And Paul says, there are some people who have corrupt minds, who have strayed from the truth, and they're teaching this idea that godly living is a means to financial gain. You can read about that in 1 Timothy 6.5. So we don't want to be people of corrupt minds people who strayed from the truth. So it's absolutely wrong to think that pursuit of God is a means to financial gain. 
That's not what Proverbs is teaching us. So what is it teaching us? Well, I would say a great place to begin is this idea of financial freedom. We're going to read about this some more. A great goal would be to be financially free. What do I mean by that? My, my definition of that would be financial freedom is being able to be who God calls me to be and go where God calls me to go. I am free to, to be the person God's called me to be, to live godly character, to be generous. And if he calls me to do something, I can respond. That's financial freedom. And if you'll go with me on a journey, I think you'll find three key points from this book which teach us why pursuing financial freedom is the wise thing to do. So let's begin with this. Uh, flip in your Bibles to chapter 10, verse 15 of Proverbs. Here's a principle that we're being taught. Financial freedom shelters us from the storms of life shelters us from the storms of life. You know what I mean by that, right? A rainy day. Anybody had one of those? You know, when the water heater goes out at the most unexpected time, when all the company's in for the holidays, and everybody's off, and it's twice the amount of money to get a guy out to fix it. You know, the rainy day. You're driving down the road. You're headed to an important job interview or appointment, and the car's water pump chooses to go out. Yeah. Or maybe sadly you discover you have an illness a big one and you have to actually pay that deductible on the insurance and it's thousands of dollars that's a rainy day and is it hard enough to deal with what's happened but then the bill comes the financial part that's a rainy day and I remember the words you've probably said them too when it rains it it's not just one it's always multiple and so a rainy day or being sheltered from storms is being able to handle that difficulty when it comes. So let's look at this verse, Proverbs 10, 15. The wealth of the rich is a fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. It's an interesting passage. So talking about a city, and this was written in the ancient Near East. So think about cities in this day and how they fortified themselves. Often cities would build walls around the city to protect themselves from their enemies. Or often a city founders would choose to build on a hill to position the city in a high ground in order to defend it against armies that would attack. So fortifying a city is protection from enemies. Well, what has that got to do with finances? Well, if you think about that, all of us have those enemies those enemies are those rainy days. Financially, when we get hit with something unexpected that can cause us to be in pain or possibly go into debt because we don't have enough to cover it. So Proverbs is actually encouraging us to build a rainy day fund to fortify ourselves, to protect ourselves from the storms of life. Very practical. And storms are unavoidable. Now, some people would say, well, hey, well, if I'm a follower of Christ, God's going to provide for me. He's not going to allow me to have a rainy day I can't handle. I'm not going to worry about it. Proverbs would say that's, that's foolish. Because if you've lived any amount of time, you know there are storms of life. This is actually a principle of Scripture. Let me back up, kind of put this in kingdom perspective. Uh, think with me back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Tells us that God created everything, the sun, moon, and stars, the earth, and everything in it. 
He created man and a beautiful place for man to live, the Garden of Eden. And God put Adam and Eve in that garden, that beautiful place with animals and plants and trees and plenty to eat. And God said man could manage the garden, name the animals, and eat from any fruit of the garden except one, that one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Chapter 2 shows us this beautiful paradise, life in perfection. God is walking and talking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It's a perfect place. And then chapter 3 happens. Adam and Eve choose to try and become like God, to gain knowledge that he has. They disobey God. And in that moment, fellowship with God is broken. The ground is cursed, and we're told we have to work hard to earn a living. Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. And from that moment, God began pursuing man to bring us back into a relationship with himself. In fact, we read about that through the rest of the Bible. It's the story of God's pursuit of us. And then it culminates in that event. God loved the world so much he sent his only son, Jesus Christ. God himself, who was rich in glory at the right hand of God and set it all aside to come to earth in form of a man, was rich and became poor on our behalf. He lived life like we live. He was abused. He was killed. He died in our place. He took our punishment for our sin so that now through faith in Christ, we can be reunited with God and be back in a relationship. And then Revelation at the end of the Bible tells us that one day God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be like paradise again, like Eden. And we get to be in the very presence of God, a place where there's no pain, there's no sin, there are no rainy days. But we're not there yet. This isn't heaven. We're on earth. This is the appetizer before the great feast for Christians. And we're still living a life, though with God, we still have difficulty. We still have a sin nature. And difficulty and disaster still happen. So yes, rainy days are a part of life. And the scripture says that we are wise when we prepare for them. So chapter 13, verse 11 tells us this. Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. This principle of saving. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 21, an inheritance quickly gained at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. It's the idea of an inheritance or almost like uh, a retirement fund that's held to the end of life. This idea that one day we won't be able to work and provide for ourselves. So it's wise to put money aside for that day. So we won't be dependent on others or get ourselves into trouble. Extremely practical stuff about saving money to protect ourselves from difficulties in life. Dave Ramsey is a Christian financial advisor and author. has written many great books and actually has courses on how to apply these biblical principles. He has a course called Financial Peace University. Excellent. If you've not been through it, I highly recommend it. In fact, how many of y'all have done Financial Peace University, a few. Phenomenal. So Dave Ramsey encourages you to build a rainy day fund. He said the first step is to try to set aside $1,000. However long it takes you, build a fund of $1,000, and you just leave it there. You don't mess with it. So that when tough times come, you have money to use for that rainy day event. You don't have to borrow it from someone else. Then he says, try and take the next step and build a fund that's large enough to cover three months' worth of expenses. And then finally, the ultimate goal is six months' worth of expenses fund. So if you lose your job or the worst happens, you have this reserve 
That's wisdom. It's wisdom. It doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it takes a while. So that's short-term savings, but there's also this long-term savings idea, saving little by little over time. If you're young and you've not begun saving for retirement, start now. I know you've heard this. If you're 25 and you put aside a little bit of money, even 25 bucks a month, you'd be amazed what compound interest can do in 30 years. There's wisdom in that. So many of us are playing catch-up as we've gotten older. So start when you're young. It's wise to prepare for the future. Uh, After last night's service, a couple came up to me, and they told me a great story. Um, And essentially, they had made the commitment to build one of these funds in their life. They started a little over time. It took them a while, and finally they reached their goal. They had their rainy day fund. That same month, uh, the husband was diagnosed with prostate cancer, which is terrible. He's fine now and recovered, praise God. But he said the deductible for their insurance was the exact amount they had just saved. And so he was just giving me a personal testimony. He said, that works. He said, and it's weird. I had cancer, but I didn't have this financial weight. And I actually was joyful in thanking God that he had provided even though I was sick. So what a cool story. It's a great example of how this can and should work in our lives. All right. So following the rainy day funds fund idea actually shelters us from what we're going to talk about next and this is the second reason why pursuing financial freedom is important because it keeps me from becoming a slave to debt becoming a slave to debt you know we live in a day where we're encouraged to consume all the time Madison Avenue marketing is phenomenal right how many of you guys watch the Super Bowl commercials love it it's better than the football game you guys remember that, that E-Trade commercial with the talking baby? Hilarious. Who doesn't love a talking baby? I'm like, I don't know what E-Trade is, but I want to buy some. This is great. They are so creative about getting us to spend our resources. We have to be careful. I mean, there's normal healthy consumption, but there is a sense of unhealthy consuming and buying. And we have to be careful about that. We have to protect ourselves. Some people would say, we shouldn't consume anything. Let's just go move out in the middle of a field and live off the land. I'm not advocating that. That's crazy talk. I mean, some of us, some of you would lose your jobs and businesses if people stopped consuming. Now, there's a healthy economics, healthy amount of consuming. But we have to do it with discipline, with some safeguards in place, and be careful about it. All right, let's look at a couple verses around this. One of the biggies... This is a significant verse. Chapter 22, verse 7. says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Some translations, instead of using servant, say slave. The borrower is slave to the lender. Ooh, that's a powerful verse. So we're being taught this principle of being careful about debt, right? Now, there's good debt and bad debt in my mind. Uh, I think the definition of bad debt would be very simply to buy something we don't have money for, and after we make the purchase, what we bought is worth less than what we owe. That's dangerous debt. We have to be careful about that. And there's good debt. Purchasing a house that we pay off over time, a house is something we can sell and pay off the debt. Even our cars, if we put enough down, it has value. It can be sold to cover the debt on it. A business that produces income 
and can be sold. So I'm not saying all debt is bad. I don't believe that, and Scripture is not teaching that. But it's teaching caution against becoming a slave or being bound to the fact that we owe someone else or we owe an institution. And the bad one is we owe a credit card. This is the dangerous debt. We call that unsecured debt, which literally means I have this debt and I have nothing to show for it, nothing of value to cover the debt if I need it or get into trouble. And so we, being careful about using that plastic in order to consume things. And here's the tricky part about using credit cards. And by the way, I've made all the mistakes. Credit cards allow me to have a standard of living when I want it rather than waiting on God when he wants to provide it. If we're not careful, we can sidestep God's plan for where he has assigned us in life to try and attain a standard of living that I want rather than what God wants to give me. And that's the whole principle of trusting God rather than our stuff. Putting God before our stuff. Jesus said it like this, Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. You see, I have freedom to serve Jesus when I don't have debt. I have freedom to be the generous person God called me to be when I'm not slaved to stuff. When I have margin, I can act today to help you rather than waiting till tomorrow. That's the financial freedom we're talking about, to be who Jesus called us to be, to go where he calls us to go. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus gave up everything for you and me. And out of gratitude for what he's done for us, we should seek to be like Christ, to set aside our things and put him first, to be willing to give it away in order to make his name great, to be a blessing to others, to care more about other people than I care about myself. That's being like Jesus. That's the freedom we're talking about. How do we do that? How exactly do you escape the slavery of debt and get free from it? There's Three key principles I think we can practice to protect us from this. One, very simply, is I have to accept my assignment in life. Whatever God has assigned for me, I have to be content with it. Proverbs 21:17 says, He who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. This idea of just consuming whatever we want, no discipline just trying to meet my appetites. We can become a slave to our appetites as much as a slave to debt. We have to be content with what we have. Apostle Paul said it like this in Philippians 4.11, I've learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to be in plenty. Sometimes God assigns us to have plenty. Sometimes he assigns us to have little. Whatever he chooses for us, we trust it's for our best interest. And that if God's going to take us through a valley, he's got a great mountaintop on the other side. And we have to trust him and be content with where he assigns us in life. Uh, some of you are in the military. Uh, some of you are active duty, some reserve. Some of you have been in the military. And you know the military has some great perks. They have a great retirement plan. They have great insurance. They even have a great education bill will help you get your degree. But wouldn't it be silly to join the Marine Corps just for the benefits? 
These are the guys who are the first in the fight on the front lines that forge the way. It's dangerous. Everyone knows when you join the military, you're signing up to help protect our country and to support our allies, to protect our interests. And you go wherever the commander-in-chief goes, where he assigns you. It's not about the benefits. And you know if you're in the military, there's good duty and there's bad duty, right? The ones you love, the duties you hate. And ultimately, you could be called on to give your life. And many men and women have, defending our country. I think about that as it pertains to our relationship with Christ. God has assignments for us. And if we choose to set aside God's assignment for our own, we're essentially telling God that what we want is more important than what he wants. It's like a military personnel, a soldier going AWOL, absent without leave, can end up in jail or court-martialed. It's a big deal. So believers, we should strive to be like Christ and accept the assignment he gives us. And by the way, if we're financially not free, that can actually hinder us from following God's assignment. If he calls us to go on a mission trip or to go into missions vocationally, are we financially free to do that, to move, to act? That's what financial freedom affords us. That's why it's the wise thing to do. Here's another way in which we seek to keep from being a slave to debt. I, I need to trust the master and not MasterCard. It's a great quote from Larry Osborne. I love it. Trust the master and not MasterCard. I remember the day. It came in the mail. It was beautiful. It was burgundy and had gold letters and it had the word member on it. Felt so good. Chris and I were first married. It was our first credit card. It was from Famous Bar Department Store, if you've ever heard of them. And we couldn't believe it. It's like we're holding this thing. It's worth money. And there was this weird, exhilarating experience. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. This idea that I could actually take this out and get something without money in my pocket. And we did. We bought a TV. We had an old black and white hand-me-down. We're like, we shouldn't be watching black and white. We deserved color. And so we had ourselves a color TV. I remember it was $300. And we've made the credit card mistakes. I'll just confess. We've been up to our eyeballs in debt on credit cards at one point in our life. And it was a mess. It was weighty. It was stressful. It was constantly hanging over our heads. To be honest, it was shameful. I was embarrassed about it. And it took a long time for us to practice some of these principles to get out of that credit card debt because it enslaved us. It held us back. And living on this side of it, I, it's night and day the difference between living free and living enslaved to that debt. We have to be careful. Trust the master, not MasterCard. I trust that he'll provide, that he'll get us a TV when he wants us to have a TV. Not going to sidestep his plan. I'm going to trust his plan and follow him. And then finally, the last principle under not being a slave to debt is choose to live below your means. Choose to live below your means. Let's look at passage, uh, chapter 21, verse 20. It says, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. And there's a principle here that if you're wise, you'll make sure you have enough for tomorrow and the next day. You'll budget and manage your resources in order to make it last. And that means showing restraint and discipline to not spend or consume everything you have. And so that means I have to learn to live 
at the standard of living God's given me. You know, most of us decide how we want to live our life or our standard of living by looking at others. If we're honest about it. We look at other people in similar places in life, similar education, similar careers, and we say, well, if that's what they have, that's what I should have, right? Teachers look at teachers, truck drivers look at truck drivers, lawyers, lawyers, even preachers. We do it. We look at other churches of similar size and pastors, what do they drive, where, where they vacation. We think, oh, well, that's what I should have. Here's the problem with that. The problem is we learn that a whole bunch of people are buried in debt. And you don't get to see the inside of their lives, that they're living paycheck to paycheck, or that they're using credit cards to float that lifestyle. No, we shouldn't be looking at others for our standard of living. We should look to God and his principles and be wise. The reality is, if we want to stop falling behind, we have to live below the amount of income God gives us. We have to have margin to stop going into debt. You want to get out of debt? Guess what? You have to lower it again to have margin to pay off your existing debt. You want a rainy day fund? Woo! Guess what? Yeah. I know. That's big, right? That's not fun. Who wants to do that? But that's the wise thing to do, and that's how it works. I spend less than I have in order to build the fund, get out of debt, and then be free to be who God called me to be and do what he calls me to do. And so it requires discipline, and it's emotional. Because other people will ask us, why are you driving an old car? You can afford a new one. I know what you do. It's because I want to have margin. You know, why don't you guys ever eat out? Some people eat at home all the time. It's because they're trying to build margin. There's a million different ways we can do this. But we have to, Dave Ramsey says we have to live like no one else today, meaning live below the standard so that tomorrow I can live like no one else, have financial freedom to do what God calls me to do. There's wisdom in that. All right, so pursuing financial freedom means I build a protection or a shelter from life's storms. Proverbs says that I... Work hard to not be a slave to debt, to stay out of it or get out of it. And then finally, and this is the fun part, pursuing financial freedom allows me to give generously. And this is really where we want to get to. This is really what the fun part of this is all about. To be in a position, to be like Jesus, to help people who are in need. That is so cool. Uh, I want to pause for a moment here and just mention probably three different groups of people are probably here. So you're here today, and you may be new to the faith, or you're still checking it out. We're so glad you're here. You're hearing this for the first time. You're like, wow, the Bible talks about that? Yeah, it does. It's pretty cool. So my encouragement to you is to try to put it into practice. Or you're here today. This is a reminder. You've heard all this before, and you're seeking to live it. I'm going to cheer you on. Hang in there. Take your next steps to keep moving forward. And then there's others here today <clears throat> that I'm aware of, and you're crushed under the weight of debt. You're buried. You're hurting. This is a hard message for you to hear. And I know because I've been there. But there's a lot of embarrassment. There's shame. There's guilt. Here's what I want you to hear. I do not want you to leave here. I don't think God wants you to leave here feeling horrible. I want you to leave here having hope. Because there's a lot of us who've been where you've been. And God has shown us the way out by following these principles. And there's help. Here at Door Creek, we're about helping people on their spiritual journey. That Financial Peace University class I told you about, we host that a couple times a year, every year. And a lot of our people have gone through it because it's so important. That might be your next step. 
Also, we have a benevolence fund. You might be worried about paying next month's rent or utilities. We want to help you. If you need that kind of help, come see us. We've got confidential counselors who can help you walk through it. But don't stay stuck and don't stay miserable. There's help and there's hope. Some of us took months, some years to get to the point where we're financially free, but it can be done. And we're here to do it together. So hang in there. So generosity. Um, there aren't too many people that got up this morning and said, I want to be a stingy person today. I want to be greedy. None of us. We all want to be generous. I was talking to a friend this week. He said, everyone wants to be that man and that woman that gives to other people and helps them. And it's a blessing and sees the impact of their generosity. We all want that. And what's awesome about it is we can actually all be there. Now, I understand things happen in life, and sometimes we end up in debt or a difficult spot because we lose a job or because of an illness. That stuff happens, and it's outside our control, and that's part of God's plan for some people. But for a lot of us, we do it to ourselves, and that's really the main focus here is how we can protect from that happening. Um, so we all want to be generous. Um, let's look at a couple of verses which actually command us to be generous. Chapter 19 and verse 17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will be rewarded. I'm sorry, he will reward him for what he has done. Let's look at another one. 21:13. If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Pretty serious. And then the last one. 29.7, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no, no such concern. That's pretty important stuff. We, as God's people, are called to be sensitive to the needs of those around us, to help those who are poor, to be generous the way Jesus is generous. That's actually God's plan for helping those who are down and out in this world. He wants to use the church, the people of God. He actually gives us extra so we can share with others. We'll look at that in a moment. But why is it, if we all want to be generous, that we're not? I think there's a couple reasons. It's really simple. I think one is we have to be careful that we don't harden our heart toward the needs of those around us. You know, we live in a global village, meaning we see what happens around the world instantly. You know, with our mobile devices, I mean, in seconds we know what's happening. And we see the needs of the world right in front of us all the time. And it's pretty overwhelming. And we can get to the point where we think, man, there's nothing I can do about this. It's kind of uncomfortable. I'm going to stop looking at it and thinking about it. And we can actually get a little calloused toward the needs of others. Kind of like a person who's a crisis first responder whether they're a crisis counselor or maybe an EMT, if you're not careful, you have to set up boundaries to protect you emotionally, right? Or else you'll get drained and burn out. And as Christians, I think sometimes we build up that boundary. We just have to be careful. Because Scripture says, if I'm not sensitive to the needs of the poor, that's actually a characteristic of the wicked. And God's people are not supposed to be wicked. We're supposed to be godly. And we should be some of the most generous people in the world. No, most of us want to be compassionate, we care about the poor, but we don't give because we can't, because we're stuck, because we haven't built the fund to give out of, or we're a slave to debt. We literally want to give and just can't. It's like, there's nothing left. 
And so that's why these principles are so critical for us to position ourselves to be generous people. It takes work. It takes a plan. It takes a budget. Sometimes a class. Sometimes sitting down and getting counsel because some of us are just better at this than others. And we have to go to people who've done it successfully to teach us how. But what is not optional is being caring and considerate and compassionate to those that are in need. So as a Christ follower, uh, we find that not only are we to manage our resources well, it actually goes a step farther. Where scripture says that God actually gives us extra that we can use to help others. Do you know this? Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. The Apostle Paul says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Paul says we actually work in part to provide for ourselves, provide for our family, but also to have extra to share with others. So you can expect, Christian, that God is going to give you extra. You're going to get it. But it's not to spend on you. It's not for me. It's to set aside some that I can share with others. That's actually God's plan. It's actually not optional. It's part of what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, My wife and I have not always been generous or striving to be generous. We haven't. There was a time when we didn't give anything. Uh, We kind of like a lot of people, we'd throw a couple dollars here. You know, kind of like the guy on the side of the road with a sign, a couple dollars, help him out. That's basically a tip, right? I mean, it's good to help those folks, but that's not real generous giving. And we weren't given anything. And we had a loving pastor friend sit down with me, and he challenged me on it. He says, you know, this is what the Bible says we're supposed to do and be. Why aren't you doing it? I didn't have a reason. And I was like a lot of people. It's like, well, we just spend everything. There's nothing left. He said, why don't you make a plan and discipline? And he talked to me about his story and explained how he did it. And so Chris and I talked about it, and we decided he's right. That's what Christ followers are supposed to do. We're supposed to be generous. And we made a plan, and we went on that journey and got to the point where we can give now. We set aside a certain percent of our income that we give to the Lord, however he leads. And you know, it's interesting When we give to God in that way, there's always enough for everything else. Funny how that is. But when we save our giving to the leftovers in the end, there seems to be nothing left. But when we make it a priority, God makes a way and he provides. So I want to share one more thing with you about generosity. It's a principle from scripture about how we're generous and how to give. And it's called first fruits giving. And it's actually throughout scripture But there's an example right here in Proverbs. Um, Look at verse in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. See, biblical generosity teaches that when I give, I give first to the Lord. Out of the first fruits. Now, what does this mean, first fruits? It's actually a farming term, right? It was written at a time when the people of Israel, most were farmers. It was an agrarian um, community. And so in that day, there wasn't a lot of irrigation. There wasn't pest control. There weren't genetically altered seeds or any of that. A farmer would plant his stuff, and if he was lucky, he would get a good crop, possibly a second and maybe a third. 
Uh, but he was dependent on the weather going right and the rain being right and things working out. And God says, when you get that crop, the first one, I want you to give to me out of that. Why? Why would he say that? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. One is the amount, the immense generosity you experience and gratitude whenever you get a crop. When everything goes right and God blesses you with a great crop. It's like, oh, that's awesome. Thank you, God. I'm going to give a portion back to you to say thanks, saying that you provided this, you did this, and I'm grateful. But there's another part of this as well, because if you're going to give a part of your crop, the first one, and you don't know if you're going to get a second or a third, you're actually exercising some faith to give away part of what you need to live on and give it away. Now it's gone. What if I don't get any more? You're saying, Lord, I trust you that you're going to provide. As you provided this, you'll continue to provide in the future. So I'm giving a portion back to you. It expresses thankfulness and trust to the Lord. It's first fruits giving. It's no different for you and me. You know, it may not be a crop. For some, it might. It might be a check. The first check of the month. Say, Lord, thank you for providing this. You gave me my job, my ability to think. The parents I had that sent me to school, that got me an education. It's all you. Thank you. Here's a portion back to you to show gratitude. But you're also showing trust. There's trust that there'll be enough left for everything else. Trust that there'll be another check next month. Trust that you won't lose your job, right? It is a faith step. But I don't know about you, but I've experienced God's faithfulness time and time again. I think about our church. Our church is celebrating 50 years this fall. 50 years. And every year, God has provided faithfully. You know, we don't sell widgets. You know, we're not a business. We don't sell services. We're completely dependent on the faithfulness of God's people. And he provides every single year. Because God is good. He's faithful when we honor him and follow his principles. Now, this isn't a fundraising message. So if you're looking for the motives behind it, it's not there. This is just truth out of God's word. It's really about you and your relationship with God and being faithful to his principles. To become like Christ. To be the generous person he's called you to be. So you can bless the people around you, the needs in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family. So that you can support the kingdom work. Whether it's a church or a good gospel-centered mission organization like Campus Crusade or InterVarsity or another one. God calls, God's, God calls his people to be generous. So what are your next steps? I don't know what they are. I know what my next steps are. I know that most of us have a next step. As long as we're in this life and growing in our faith, God wants to take us to the next level. I mentioned some of you may be just really strapped, and you need help getting out of debt. You need to leave this room and sign up for Financial Peace University at Connection Point. Or come see us this week and talk to our benevolence ministry. Others of you can give, but you're not. You know, the statistics are only about half the people that come to Door Creek give. Some just haven't learned this yet. And so now that you've heard it, my encouragement to you is practice it. If you're giving nothing, just give something. Just get started. If you're giving something, but it's a tip, go the next level and give sacrificially. Give generously to the Lord. However he leads you. That's between you and God. And some of you are right where you need to be. You're giving significantly. Maybe you need to consider giving sacrificially, upping it. Remember, if God's giving you extra, it's not all for you. Some of it's to be set aside to be given to others who are in need. These are faith steps. 
This is about your relationship with Christ. And what I know is God always honors a faith step. He always has and he always will. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. And Father, it is our intense desire that we would know you in every way and not have anything in our lives that would hinder us from experience the joy of our salvation. And Father, we pray through the power of your spirit you would help us live out these truths to become a generous people that bring glory to your name and that are a blessing to those around us in our church, in our city, and around the world, that you may be glorified, you may be honored, you may be praised. We ask in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.